Welcome to Bluegrass Stories. I'm Katie Daly. In 2015, the iconic dobro player Mike Aldridge entered the IBMA Hall of Fame as a member of the original Seldom Seen. This year, he will be inducted into the IBMA Hall of Fame as a solo artist in a gala ceremony September 26th in Raleigh, North Carolina. Fellow dobro player and friend Jerry Douglas will be one of two presenters at that ceremony. Howard Parker spoke with Jerry about Mike's playing, their friendship, and the significance of Mike being recognized as a solo artist. When did you first encounter Michael? I first encountered him with Emerson and Waldron at Berryville, Virginia. I did, and I was trying to find a picture I know exists of Mike uh, came over to my father's uh, camper across the street if everybody anybody remembers the setup of how the gate how you went into Berryville uh, right across from right across from the the main gate going into the festival there was another field and my folks were camped there my dad would do these uh, 13 week paid vacations every every five years or so and uh, that was one of the years that he had it. So we just kind of ran around at different bluegrass festivals all summer. But Berryville was the one that he was really, he was really uh, fond of. And you know, it was the it was the the equivalent of Merle Fest of its day. And and uh, and I'd say it probably turned more people onto bluegrass music than any other festival. Uh, of its time uh, and Emerson and Waldron were playing there and I wanted to meet Mike Aldridge so he, he came over to the he came over to the and I would have been 12 or 13 years old probably and about the same time I met Josh Graves so I think it was 68 or 69 when we were there and he came over and played, and I have somewhere I have uh, a picture of that of him sitting in a in a chair there at the at the campsite, and he and I playing. That was so early in Mike's career. How, how did how did you how did you come to even um, uh, know know the name in '68? Heard the record. Heard the record. So. The, the 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 one where they're standing in front of a carriage, I think it is, a landmark record for me. And he was, you know, he was the new gateway drug for me to Dobro, it, you know, because I'd run out of Flat and Scrug stuff, and Josh Graves was was just kind of playing with Lester Flat and running around. Uh, and Mike presented a completely new uh bag of tricks and and we, he was playing a different kind of music and what what was he bringing to the table in 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 1968 I, i've heard uh, ben eldridge say that uh, mike aldridge really didn't become you know quote mike aldridge unquote until much later maybe around you know act three or old he was playing a lot a lot of josh licks he's playing a lot of josh stuff but he was getting really close, really starting to refine his backup approach, you know, and he was such a great singer, too. So 
during the choruses, there was no dobro backup. But there, uh, but he was uh, refining his backup skills against the vocalist. I would say at that time, that's really what I heard, and really what it still to me is one of the most important things you can do with the instrument. And he was he was in the way in the foreground of that. I mean, Josh did it too. Josh Josh wrote the book, and Mike added the second added the second. Uh, book to the encyclopedia and then when he moved from uh i guess later cliff waldron and the new shades of grass over to the seldom scene it was clear that he was evolving in into something else were, were you hearing that as well yeah i was hearing that as well and i think a lot of it had to do with you know him him and his day job at the washington star the star closed along that time and uh, it just kind of went away as a newspaper, and so he was he was suddenly uh, working as a graphic artist on some on people's records, album covers, and stuff like that. But he was mainly woodshedding, you know, and and uh, playing. By then, you know, when he started with the Seldom Scene, they didn't travel a lot, but they had a steady gig, and he was teaching and. And uh, a lot of things like that. I mean, he had that that place in his basement where it was sort of a torture chamber for his students. Uh, I think you were one of them, weren't you? (laughs) I went down there, but I didn't go down there to learn anything. He showed me when I went down there that he was more into the pedal steel at that point. Yeah, well, I I could tell you that that my very first Dobro lesson um, with him... uh, uh, he asked me to play, I don't know, something. I, I have no idea what the hell it was now. But uh, he he would always preface his remarks by saying, hey, man. And so I played him a little bit. And he's, he said, hey, man, I don't want to discourage you, but you're just doing it all wrong. And, uh, <laughs> well, Howard, we didn't know. Howard, we, have, yeah. we didn't have the Internet. So we didn't have YouTube. We didn't have any way to see these guys doing what they do. I, I had the same thing. It was like when I first started playing Dobro, when I first played for Josh Graves, I thought it was like I just learned uh, Swedish and just uh, oh, yeah. uh, spoke to my first Swedish person and they understood me. There weren't all these tools that you have now. It's really changed. Things have really changed and, and you would go to a guy like that and, and you'd be playing something you thought this is the way he played it. Well, he was probably playing it in a completely different position in the neck, and that's why he was getting the sounds that he was getting because he knew the instrument. He knew that if he played it on the first string, it sounded one way, but if he went down the neck and played it on the third string, it had more body, more depth, more, you know, it was, you know, it was a more thought-out way, and you know. And and in, instantly uh, instantly identifiable uh, from the first two or three notes, you knew exactly who it was that was playing that thing. His career spanned close to forty four years. Um, it's tough to take in all those years. Uh, uh, you know, as one lump sum, is, is there? Do you think there there was a sweet spot? Uh, the fans, I think, certainly think that there was a sweet spot. They they tend to focus on the uh, 
on on the scene years and um, and there's not a lot of knowledge about the the early scene stuff and there's even less knowledge about um, a lot of the post um, seldom scene stuff to my mind was almost as important or more important than the stuff he did with the scene. Uh, do you have any thoughts on on that? Well, I think you know he and I were both out there looking for our voice, you know, and, and our voice, our dobro voice in different genres of music and, you know, grooving and grooving music, you know, it wasn't like bluegrass music where you just kind of follow the, follow the trail of all the other instruments, you know, and if you didn't, you, you were kind of stuck out too much. Uh, but, but he was, he was looking for ways, I mean, he was playing lap steel. I mean, when I saw him with like the, one of the bands he had with T. Michael and Goodrow and, and a lap steel and all this stuff, man, it took him an hour to set up. And, uh, he was, he was trying to have as many voices as he could. So he could go from one particular kind of music, uh, to another. And, but he was. He was moving around on on three different slide instruments. Uh, he really, really loved pedal steel, and Emmons Emmons was his guy. And you know, I worked a lot with Emmons here in town, and Emmons was just a crazy man. And he and he was a lot like Mike in that he he created a lot of that stuff. He he made it up. Uh, it was, I don't know, I, he was listening to, I think that when he was growing up, he heard a, a lot of different kinds of music, and, and big band music would have been one of the things that he he had been into. So he listened to horn lines, like, and I do too. Uh, I mean, you can't go, you, it's not an instrument where you can go back into history and go, oh, okay, I, I can I can do this, I can play this way. Uh you mean the instrument's new it's brand new in the scheme of things so we're still finding creating different ways to play it and for it to fit into different genres of music and he he was creating a, an entirely new vocabulary and and i note that the, that that band chesapeake was arguably arguably at the time one of the most reviled <laughs> If I can, if I can say that, one of the most reviled bands in the in the history of bluegrass music. I mean, the the the, the reaction to Chesapeake was um, pretty negative at the time. I I recall. We we came up with an increment of time was was uh, was a when Chesapeake would hit the stage in in Texas and the and the slamming of the lawn chairs, um, you know, and the people taking off when they'd see you know, all these things come out on stage that they weren't used to seeing, you know, the, the lawn chairs started slamming. So it was just a, it was like, how long is it going to take for the lawn chairs to start slamming as soon as these guys show up on stage? And the same thing happened to Tony, Tony, uh, Trishka and Skyline, you know, he, they were really pushing the, pushing the envelope and it was, it wasn't bluegrass music and it was, it was a amalgamation of, of, uh, country and swing and bluegrass that, a lot of people didn't know how to grasp, you know, or just weren't listening, weren't willing to sit and listen because they were kind of plopped into the middle of a, no one knew where to put them, you know, 
if they played a solo show, totally fine. If they put, but they were plopped down the middle between, uh, and you know, an Uncle Dave Macon show and a, and a and a and a you know some other kind of like hardcore bluegrass Del McCurry set or something. It was sure. a strange yeah. sound. It was a strange sound, and they weren't ready for it. Uh, they they were more of a one-off kind of a band. They were uh, they weren't uh, a festival band. And then after and then after Chesapeake, he sort of reverted back uh, uh, more into a, a, a bluegrass mode. Did did you did did you and Mike ever discuss that and why he might have done that? No, we didn't. We didn't discuss why. I think he just. I think he was the odd man out there. I think that he was. He was not as into playing boogie music as as T. Michael, and uh, you know, and and the rest of the band, you know, into that groove. He he still had his bluegrass leanings, and they were going to shine through, no matter what. So he was he was kind of the normal guy on stage, but he was play he was doing so much. But <clears throat> I think that it just beat him down, and he decided that that was not going to work. That was not going to work. He needed to take a different approach. And, and he just went back to what he really knew how to do. And, and he got, and he got, he had more wisdom at that point, you know, and had learned a lot of, a lot of rules of yes, uh, do this and don't do that, that he just became this, again, this just really beautiful melodic, uh, dobro player who who had a tone like no one else had but it was that was in his hands we all we all played different i played different than mike i i i played harder i played faster and mike was sweeter his tone was sweeter and i know how he got it i mean i can get close but i i don't have mike aldridge's hands i mean it, it's a you're you know the instrument's just a conduit of of what you have in your head uh and some people know how to make that work and he was one and and speaking speaking of the instrument did you uh, there do you think that uh paul beard might have had a role in sort of um i wouldn't say encouraging mike with with the new guitar but it seemed like mike took on a new energy when when he they finally developed the uh, the MA6 guitar, uh, uh, Paul Beard and Beard guitars. Yeah, those guitars were like pianos. I mean, that, that was such a huge sound and, and a hybrid, you know, of the the old Dobros that he was playing. And then you know, he decided, to, you know, Paul created this thing that was had all of the qualities that Mike liked, plus some that he had never heard before. So he was able to open up those possibilities too, because he had a louder guitar. He, he had, uh, you know, this thing was, a, it, and I'm not kidding. They're more like pianos, the way they were set up inside, uh, and the way they would project was like, uh, being the first, I, he gave me 007. He gave me 007 of, of, uh, <laughs> That's a great number. <laughs> yeah. I said, he said, I thought this would be for you. And I said, yes, Thank you, and I've I've got it up here in the studio, and I get it out every every once in a while. When I want to make a big full chord, and I want it to be, you know, I want it to just be, you know, it, it has such a wide 
uh, spectrum of sound coming out of that one guitar. Uh, other guitars don't do that. I mean, it's just something that Paul did. I mean, and yes, Paul played it, definitely played a huge part in his uh, metamorphosis, mm. as you, if you want to call it that, to this new, beautiful, big, beautiful, full sound, you know, that he couldn't get out of the old Dobros, even though he had a couple of the better Dobros that were ever made, probably, hand-picking him from Grady Jones' old uh, uh, collection over there when Grady was, was rolling, and I don't know how he got all those guitars, but he would let Mike, he's a funny guy, Grady, but he would let Mike yeah. go in there and just kind of pick up whatever he wanted, and Mike got two that were almost identical, and they sounded almost identical. The first one and that Paul still has is that, that is an amazing guitar, uh, amazing Dobro guitar. That was one of the best things those fellows ever built. But, you know, a funny thing about those, about those guitars is that um, uh, I actually had an opportunity to bring both of them home for a weekend, and I don't recall exactly why I had them, but Mike said, sure, bring them home. And I asked him if if he mind I, if I could, like, play him. He said, oh, sure, go ahead, because these things are like the holy grail. We played, we once sat down when I was playing the Jones. Uh, he was really, he really wanted to know more about it and what it sounded like and everything. And he played, he played his, my guitar and I played his and we sounded like each other, you know, because he, even with, even with his hands on that guitar, on my, you know, it was the same with that guitar. Other people playing that guitar is just like, they. I mean, I, Rob, I once told me, he said, I don't get it. I don't. I don't get what's special about this guitar. I just, I'm not able to get anything great out of it. But it was just a guitar that recorded well. And you know, Paul and I have had that that debate for a, a long, long time about there are guitars that sound great live, and there are guitars that in the studio win hands down against those <clears throat> those great sounding outdoor guitars. I don't know what it is. It's just a, it's just a thing that uh, microphones like, you know. And it, it's, uh, he, but he played my guitar and I played his guitar and I, and I tried to make sounds like him and they were in the guitar, but almost, you know, and we were both doing that. It was like getting really close. This, these, these guitars sound different enough that. Let, can we uh, jump forward? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you've got a finite amount of time here. I don't want to keep you on all time and and um, sort of um, end up by talking about three bells. Uh, three bells. Three bells was something that I wanted to do, and something that Mike and I had been talking about since we met. You know, and since we, you know, after he. I'll say after he kind of accepted that I was, I was good, you know, <laughs> that mm -hmm. I was good, good enough. And he wanted to play with me, you know, and we wanted to bounce ideas off each other. We always had in the back of our minds to record, to make a record together, but we'd never had the time to do it. And, uh, and Mike's, you know, when, when he's, when his, uh, his cancer started flaring up and it was obvious that that you know he he wasn't going to be around forever that we decided we got to we have to I said we got to do this now we have to do this now I don't want to make this morbid to you 
But he said, well, we've always wanted to do it. There's nothing stopping us. I got, I've got more time. He said, I'm weak, but, I, you know, we'll go as long as I can go. And I said, I think we should get, I think we should get uh, Rob involved in this too, because he's such, you know, he's such a fan, and he, he, you know, you're the guy that made him want to play. It wasn't me. It, it was you. And, uh, and I said, I think that, you know, the three of us are the the guys that most people copy when they're learning anyway, or the people that they want to listen to. I said, why don't we just record? Just for ourselves. Let's just do this for ourselves. Because I, 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 it was a totally selfish move on my part to want mm-hmm. to have him, want to hear him, and want something that would last forever that I could get from him. And uh, and then we pulled Rob into it, and told Rob was just, you know, he he loved he he was in. He, there was no talking him into anything. He was, he 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 always wanted to do it too. So, uh, we Rob and I we would get well. We get our our schedules together and figure out a time, and hope that Mike we'd fly up there and just hope that Mike had the energy, and he would every time he would rally enough energy to uh, go to the studio, and. Uh, and we'd work for four or five hours, and then that would be it. And we'd get as much as we could, and we'd talk about tunes. We made a list of tunes. What would we like to cut? You know, we had a whole bunch of stuff, a lot, a lot that we never got to. But we we wrote tunes. We uh, uh, and we just played some. I, I really wanted to play uh, Golden uh, Silver Threads Among the Gold. Because that's where Mike started in his uh, his first uh, solo uh, album. And so I thought, we need to do that. We need to do a new version of that with us. And and then at, ver- at the very end, the very last thing I thought of was using my Bible for a roadmap. So I always loved the way he played that. And, you know, and Duffy being, you know, Duffy and, and trying to to be a mouse the size of an elephant, you know, and, and, uh, um, just, it was, it was amazing what, you know, seldom seen people don't realize that that band should never have happened. Um, uh, it was just, uh, those guys wanted to play so bad. They got together and they figured out, Hey, we, I think we have something here. And, uh, it was, it worked out. It was just a magic, magical thing that the thing between Duffy and, you know, all of them, all five of them, it 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 fit, it worked, it was it had never been done, and that worked. And so that and that's all history. But back to the the three bells, we I I said there is a song called Three Bells that I think we could we could play. I think it would really be sweet. And we had it worked out. We had it all figured out. And we never got to record it with Mike. That's that's Rob mm. and I playing all the parts, but we we played the parts that we played the part that Mike was just yeah. to play physically. Now, now now can you can you confirm by the way? Is there a story about sandwiches? Yes, this, and it's one of the mo- it's it's the most Mike Aldridge thing. Uh, I mean, knowing him and knowing how. Uh, what a character and what a guy, uh, what a, 
creature of habit he was. Like he said, now you guys come to the house. When you fly in, come to the house and we'll have lunch. And then we'll go to the studio and, you know, then I'll have my energy, you know, and everything like that. But he would drive himself, too. That was another thing. But uh, we got to the house, knocked on the door, came in. He said, I've got lunch ready. He opened up this cooler. We, we each had we each had a, a, what was it, sandwich? It was a ham and cheese sandwich uh, cut <laughs> diagonally. Um <laughs> Uh, some chocolate chip cookies and a Coke, you know. And even if you never, if you were didn't drink Coke, that's what you drank. And that <laughs> and that was lunch, you know. That was lunch, and that, that should be enough for anybody. Here we go. That was his that was his think thinking. The next time we went up to record, uh, he said, well, "We won't have time to eat lunch here at the house, so I'll just bring lunch to the studio." So he brought lunch to the studio and packed the cooler, ham and cheese sandwich, Coke, uh, chocolate chip cookie. Same thing. So the next time, the third trip, the third trip, uh, Rob, Rob and I knew what we were up against. So we went to some, we, we went to some faux joint, you know, and chowed down before we went to the ham and cheese sandwich. Yeah, my... You know, my stomach was growling during the during the set because you know I'm a bigger guy and I and I I needed a little bit more than that and uh, so did Rob so we decided to go eat before lunch. <laughs> I can't remember it was someplace close to the studio. We just took off and found this joint and did we got time? And but Mike he still had the ham and cheese sandwiches, you know, and we ate them. There was so much respect, though, I have to say, that both Rob and I, we had such respect for Mike, and it went beyond Dobro. You know, it went way beyond Dobro. It was just like the way the, the, way the guy lived his life, and, and, and his, his wonderful wife, Elise, and, and uh, Elise wouldn't have anything to do with it. But we also stayed at the house when we were there. If we we had we'd stay, we'd go to the studio and come back to Mike's house and Mike said, Okay, hey, you guys hungry? I'm gonna order a pizza. And we thought, Oh, great, we'll get some pizzas, we'll be fine. He ordered one one large thin crust uh pepperoni pizza. And we like I ate two pieces of it, felt guilty, but I could have eaten the whole damn thing, you know. But uh <laughs> I think Rob could have too, but we just went all right, that's 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 our uh, ration. Well, Jerry Douglas, you've been uh, incredibly generous with your time and uh, and your stories. We thank you so much. Uh, have any final thoughts at all? He did so much advancement to an instrument that is becoming more and more important to the bluegrass music scene. You know, it was a first the stepchild. Josh Graves kind of proved that it was something that could and he took josh graves took flat and scrubs to another another level right just broadened their audience and create created a situation where they could play another a completely different kind of music but still be what they were and mike did that he did that too he he uh he just made the instrument 
something that was more eloquent and more beautiful and uh, the world of dobro and the world of bluegrass music and the world of music would be a totally different place without him uh i i don't think i would exist i don't think any dobro players after josh graves we'd all be playing josh graves licks which are beautiful and fine i mean i have a whole band based around it but but uh mike changed the landscape to make it uh okay to play you know uh, songs that weren't in the in the bluegrass uh canon and and uh and you know the seldom scene was all they were all pushing the envelope but mike was really on his instrument was doing things that weren't supposed to happen for another hundred years or something uh, and, and he gave us all such a boost uh and put us all so much farther ahead than we would have been just because because of what he was because of what his makeup was and i i really believe that that uh that we are, we play the instrument instruments that we do, but we could play any other instrument, and we would still make that sound. We we would still make that sound. We would make. I mean, in Mike's case, he still would have come out with these beautiful lines, and and things that he did behind singers. You know, it, it it's really a tutorial on taste. You know, you mentioned the Mike Aldridge name. And people just go, man, yeah, that, that is class. That is class. That was Jerry Douglas speaking with Howard Parker about iconic dobro player Mike Aldridge, who will be inducted this year into the IBMA Hall of Fame as a solo artist. I'm Katie Daly. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll take the time to listen to some of the other episodes of Bluegrass Stories available on iTunes, Facebook, SoundCloud, and on katydaily.com. Mm-hmm.